Hello, and welcome to One World, One Health, with the latest ideas to improve the health of our planet and its people. I'm Maggie Fox. Planet Earth faces problems such as pollution, climate change, and new and re-emerging infectious diseases, and they are all linked. This podcast is brought to you by the One Health Trust, with bite-sized insights into ways to help. The entire world is still seeing firsthand how closely all of these problems are linked with the ongoing COVID-19 pandemic. It's a virus that originated in animals and has spread to people. In this episode, we're chatting with Dr. Felicia Goodrum, professor of immunobiology at the University of Arizona and co-editor-in-chief of the Journal of Virology. She's taken a strong interest in how important research has been to detecting, fighting, and studying the pandemic, and how important the field of virology will be to helping prepare for the next one. Felicia, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Maggie. I'm really delighted to be here. There's been a lot of discussion lately about where COVID came from. Before we dive into that, let's talk about where other coronaviruses are known to have come from. I'm thinking SARS in 2002 and the Middle East Respiratory Syndrome virus or MERS. Right. And those, of course, are really important viruses to understand for a number of reasons. A, they are predecessors and, and cousins that we can really understand. And, and the work that we was done on them for decades really um, founded, laid the foundation for the work that allowed for the rapid development of vaccines and antivirals for SARS-CoV-2. And so what we know about these viruses, like most viruses, they emerge into the human population through a zoonosis event, which is a jump from animals into humans that then acquires a sustained spread human to human. And that actually is a fairly rare event. We think that zoonoses often will jump or occur to allow a virus to jump into humans, but then that's a dead end and it can't actually replicate in the human or it can't spread human to human. But in the case of SARS-CoV-2, of course, that happened. With SARS and MERS, it also happened, but the, the ability of that virus to spread was much more confined than for SARS-CoV-2. And can you tell, tell us a little bit about how we know that the first SARS and that MERS came from animals and into people and didn't occur in some other way? You know, a lot of this comes from the sequencing that is done to gather information prior to an outbreak. I mean, this really needs to happen rather agnostically. Prior to an outbreak, we are surveilling the viruses that are circulating among populations of animals, um, especially those that are likely to give rise to zoonoses. And so that often includes bats. And sometimes those viruses will enter into another animal that serves as an intermediate coming from bats into another animal that then will jump into humans. And so we really have to know what viruses are out there and circulating. And this is you know work that requires decades and decades of sort of collecting and cataloging and seeing how viruses are changing and moving throughout populations. And with both the original SARS and the current SARS, there's very strong evidence that bats are the original reservoir of the viruses. Exactly. And you could tell that by looking at the genetic sequence. The genetic sequence, right. And often when a zoonosis happens, you're never going to find the exact animal that was the reservoir. And so that is the case currently with SARS-CoV-2, is that we do not have an animal that has that exact sequence for SARS-CoV-2. And that has fed um, all of these conspiracy theories, right? Not being able to find the smoking gum. With the original SARS, it was pretty clear it was something, it was an animal that was being eaten by people living in Southeast Asia. It's pretty clear that's where it came from. But not this one, we don't have that intermediate animal, and that's what's making people confused. 
That's right. But it is very common that if we never find actually that intermediate animal. Um, and in the case of SARS-CoV-2, while sequences have been found in the seafood market where um, SARS seems to have made its jump into humans, the exact animal hasn't been found. And that's because those animals are now long gone following the pandemic. This is another place where surveillance of genomes ha that are out there and circulating is really important to happen prior to the outbreak because it's really, that's the only way you find um, what has really caused that outbreak often. And so that's that's one of the problems. Some politicians have have expressed concern about this kind of laboratory research, looking at what what would the virus look like if it was something that could live in bats, jump to another animal, jump to people, and then survive in people for more than one or two generations so it could spread. Those Each one of those leaps requires a genetic change. And what you're saying is that scientists need to understand that process ahead of time. Yes, absolutely. And But it confuses people because they're like, well, these scientists are cooking up frankenviruses in the lab. That is the concern. And, and it's, it's a little bit misdirected of a concern because, you know, Laboratory research has always been surrounded by a lot of safety considerations. Biosafety is a paramount mount. It's the first thing a student learns when they enter a virology lab is the importance of safety to protect you know, the people working with the virus, but also the greater population. Uh, a very small fraction of research, very, very, very small fraction of research actually is conducted that could result in one of these sort of frankenviruses, as you refer to. And that research has given really intense oversight at the federal level. And there's a lot of structure in place, both at local institutions, all the way up through the federal government, where there is research to make sure that what's being done and the experiments being conducted are in the best interest of science and understanding, for example, how viruses spread and not posing that heightened risk. And this research is known commonly as gain-of-function research. That's a, that's a term that's getting thrown around. And then there are some other terms that are a bit more precise. Can you walk us through some of that language? Sure. Well, gain-of-function is a very powerful genetic tool. In all of genetics, I mean, the most, most simply put, 50% of it will be loss of function, which we learn a lot from, and 50% is going to be gain of function. And gain of function really encompasses anything where you have made a genetic change in a pathogen um, that now it has gained an additional function. So this could be something sort of as benign or simple as engineering a fluorescent marker into that pathogen so that you can follow its transmission through a dish of cultured cells, or it can be much more sort of complex, um, and I think where the worry has stemmed from, and that it could incorporate changes that make it more transmissible, for example, or um, increased pathogenesis. And that is the research that gets the highest level of scrutiny and oversight in the United States. Let's go back just a little bit and explain to people about these genetic changes because viruses mutate constantly, some more than other. Can we explain a little bit about how some of these mutations make the virus more fit, more able to live in its host? In this case, we're concerned about a human. Some of the changes make the virus just die out. Viruses do constantly mutate. And so they're doing their own experiments out there in nature. And certainly as they are moving from different host species, they are having to acquire changes. That is essentially a gain of function um, event when a virus makes mutations that allows it to jump into another host and actually replicate. There's a lot of barriers to viruses jumping species because viruses have evolved 
to really be able to work with the system that they find within the cells of a particular species. And so jumping from species to species, you know, there are a lot of barriers to that. And it is a gain of function when a virus does that. And so scientists that are studying these viruses, I mean, this is what we really need to understand in order to develop effective um, vaccines and antivirals. We need to understand how viruses are changing how they're acquiring these functions um, so that we're ready to respond when one has um, the pandemic potential. And so what's the harm in having the debate over whether this was going on in, in a lab in Wuhan or anywhere else? Isn't this something people should be aware of? Absolutely. And there's no harm in having the debate. And the question was posed, and you know, number of years ago now um, during the pandemic of we need to understand these origins. Understanding where pandemics come from is a very, very important question. But now, years later, there is a lot of evidence that has been accumulated over time by scientists all over the world studying this pandemic. I'm not one of those scientists, just for clarification. I study a DNA virus, so I really stay out of the spray. But as a a virologist, I know how to understand the data, how to evaluate the data. And I feel like in that way, I can be an advocate for the work going on where I don't actually have skin in the game. But this this work is really important, and what it has yielded is a lot of evidence for a zoonotic origin to SARS-CoV-2. What we do not have evidence for is the alternate hypothesis was that it came from a laboratory leak. And so with the evidence, these are now, you know, we, we went from two plausible hypotheses early in the pandemic to now one that is very strongly supported by the data and the evidence that exists. You've pointed this out in the Journal of Virology in a commentary. When people hear lab leak, what they think is a human-engineered virus meant to be scary. But there could be a different kind of lab leak that is a little less nefarious. And I suppose you could be studying a naturally occurring virus. You could have some bats in cages that were infected, and that could be a lab leak as well. It's not necessarily some kind of engineered virus. Exactly. Government oversight is supposed to make sure that care is taken, that these viruses don't escape, don't infect the lab workers. Yes, and that care and oversight is there um, from the level of the individual, the individual institution, all the way up through the federal government. But there are accusations that even though this oversight is supposed to exist, that the Wuhan Institute of Virology did not, in fact, exercise that oversight carefully enough. Yes, that's the concern, and I think it's a reasonable concern and something that needs to be there. You know, we, we lack a little transparency there to actually know um, everything that was happening, and that's that's a huge problem. But the truth of the matter is the, you know, what cannot be refuted is that despite that being a plausible hypothesis, the data and evidence that has been collected um, that in, has emerged over the past two years very clearly falls in the camp of supporting the hypothesis that it was a zoonotic origin. And so therefore, despite the concern um, and the lack of transparency that has existed, the data that we currently have supports the zoonotic hypothesis. And when you say lack of transparency, what you're saying is that the Chinese government hasn't really given enough information about what did or didn't happen. Yes. All of this mistrust, how does it hurt the possibility of international cooperation? I mean, the world, this is one health, right? What happens in China affects what happens in the U.S. And this mistrust has got to be damaging any kind of work towards international cooperation on that level. This is where I see just the infinite risk 
Viruses know no boundaries, as we learned very, very well in this pandemic. And so where they emerge, they're going to you know, easily be able to affect us here. And what it takes is a global collaboration and global partnerships and able to be able to respond. Um, we need transparency between governments and we need collaboration and connection and networking between scientists so that people are in conversation about what's happening, about strange pneumonias that are popping up in hospitals. Uh, sequence data needs to be shared so that we can actually very quickly develop the virals, the antivirals and the vaccines. If we did not have really strong partnerships with China, for example, we would not be able to prepare for the seasonal flu that we're going to see every single year. So how do we do that? And how do we protect our citizens if we don't have these global collaborations? And so while science across the world needs to be conducted with rigor and safety, we need to be able to ensure that, but also ensure that we are working together as a world to really you know, protect from these sorts of challenges, because these challenges are increasing with climate change and habitat destruction, increased urbanization, as we are interfacing more and more with animal populations that we have not previously interfaced with, and we have cities with very dense populations. We are prime for these sorts of um, emergence events. In the last 100 years, there's been a virus that has emerged with the potential to cause an epidemic or pandemic at least every 10 years. But in the last, say, three to five years, I mean, there have been three. So this is increasing. And it's increasing because of climate change and habitat destruction, um, the way people are living, the industrialization of farming practices. And it's not just about human health. Can you imagine a virus that emerges that wipes out all poultry or all pork or all corn or all rice? This would be devastating to the human population. And so it is very much a One Health issue, and it is very much an issue where we must have global partnerships. Felicia, thank you so very much for spending this time with us. Great. I'm so happy to be here. Thank you, Maggie. If you like this podcast, which is brought to you by the One Health Trust, please share it by email, LinkedIn, or your favorite social media platform. And let us know what else you'd like to hear about at OWOH at OneHealthTrust.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to One World, One Health, brought to you by the One Health Trust. I'm Ramanan Lakshmi Narayan, founder and president of the One Health Trust. You can subscribe to One World, One Health on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Follow us on social media at One Health Trust, One Word, for updates on One World, One Health, and the latest in research on One Health issues like drug resistance, disease spillovers, and the social determinants of health. Finally, please do consider donating to the One Health Trust to support this podcast and other initiatives and research that help us promote health and well-being worldwide. Until next time.